In August of 1982, a company called Starpath created an accessory for the Atari 2600 that they named the Supercharger. This accessory added memory to the Atari and allowed it to play games stored on standard cassette tapes. This allowed gamers to play bigger and better games using the Supercharger. Today, we're going to look at this device as well as some of the other accessories created for the Atari 2600. As part of the discussion, we'll also look at the entire library of games created for it as well. So stick around and join us as we take today's trip down memory card lane. afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 153rd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just one topic somehow relevant to this week in gaming history. Well, teaching you about said topic, we hope to teach you something new about it, what it t- world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy today we're all going to learn about the star path super charger an accessory for the atari 2600 i'm david casson and as always i'm joined by my co-host who loves to supercharge things he's my brother rob casson rob what are we souping up this week um you know, I haven't really gotten that far, Dave. Kind of just nope. uh, just supercharge the world. Supercharge the world? Yeah. How does that, one supercharge the, the world? Uh, it, it's a complicated process. We're still working out the math. There's there's still a th- few things to figure out here and there. Theoretical math. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, what you've been playing this week? Well, Dave, this week has seen some RuneScape, some Rocket League, some Construction Simulator. Uh, I don't think there's been anything else. So, yeah. How about yourself? Rocket League. Fair enough. I don't know if I've played it. I'm I'm thinking. I am thinking. I don't believe I have played anything else this week. Well, we're always going to have those weeks, especially when there's a lot going on in the houses. Mm -hmm. But it's been some good Rocket League, at least. That goes for one of us. <laughs> yeah, it was a sweaty and rough night last night. That was a, oh yes, that, that wasn't just you. That was that was for all of us. That was definitely for all of us. So, so yes, Star Path Supercharger sounds fancy smancy. It definitely does. Is and it though? I have no idea. I guess we're gonna learn all about it, but. I definitely got to say that it's not something that's ever come across my path before. Ah, get it, get it, get it. The Ah, star path. Yeah, there you go. You're getting it. So in June of 1981, Alan Bailey, Robert Brown and Craig Nelson founded the Arcadia Corporation. Now that's Craig Nelson and not Craig T. Nelson. Don't confuse him with the famous actor. And I say famous actor. Do you even know who Craig T. Nelson is? It's a very familiar name, but I couldn't tell you what they've been in. Uh huh. Okay, cool. Cool beans. Just dated myself again. All right. Well, these three dudes founded the Arcadia Corporation. Shortly thereafter, the Emerson Radio Corporation released a video game console that they named the Emerson Arcadia 2001. It's like, you know, a space odyssey deal. They wanted to be fancy schmancy. So the name Arcadia was a no go. Because of this, the trio of Alan, Robert, and Craig decided that they were going to rename their company Starpath. Don't know where Starpath came from. Tried to figure it out. It's a cool name. Don't know what the meaning is. Wish I did. Maybe treading a path through the stars. We'll go with that. How's that sound? Sounds great to me. Starpath's only claim to fame is an accessory that they've created for the Atari 2600 home video game console. Now this accessory and today's topic is called the Starpath Supercharger. It is an expansion cartridge that allows players to play cassette-based proprietary games on their Atari 2600. It, you know, I was going to make a reference here to the Game Genie, but I think we've talked about the fact that you have no clue what the Game Genie is either. 
So is that for, like the Game Shark? Yes, but for the Nintendo. Well, then I know yeah. about it. Oh, you don't really know what it looks like, though, do you? That's that's a fair point. No, okay. I would imagine it's something to do like the GameCube adapter for Game Boy Advance games, where it's just this thing goes on it, just just attaches to the console. So basically, the Starpath Supercharger looks like a long cartridge. It has a handle on the end. And coming out of it is a long cable with a headphone jack that could be plugged into the earphone jack of any standard cassette player. And this means that Superpath games are loaded from standard cassette cartridges. Now, it's not the first time we've discovered that there were video games played on cassettes. We, we know that some of the PCs did that earlier on. We covered that in the music episode. We learned that there were cassettes and records that contained video games on them. Remember that? Yeah, it was definitely an interesting thought something that still blows my mind now. And it's the same concept. In both cases, there's always a cable that gets plugged into the, you know, into the device through the the earphone or headphone jack. And that's how it transfers data from, you know, said storage medium, cassette or record over to the device. In this case, it's cassettes. The biggest improvement that the supercharger made was that it added six kilobytes to the Atari's 128 bytes of RAM. So this means that the Atari went from 128 bytes of memory to 6,272 bytes of memory. Pretty big jump. It's a pretty big jump. It basically made the memory increase like 19-fold. And this additional memory allowed for games that are made for the supercharger to be larger and thus have better graphics. Also, adding to that, cassettes had higher capacities than the Atari cartridges, so this complemented that advantage. So there are, are there are a few other little things you should know about the supercharger. For those of you who like the technical dorky stuff, Despite the fact that the Atari 7800 was backwards compatible with Atari 2600 cartridges, this accessory does not work on the Atari 7800. It has to do with a chip that they added to that chipset to make a single game work. It managed to lock this thing out. Oh, I know, neat. right? Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely neat. Um... It does, however, work on the Atari 2600, the Atari 2600 Junior, which was a smaller, cheaper form factor Atari that resembled the 7800. And it also works on the Sears Video Arcade, which was a Sears branded Atari console. So if you have any of those, you can purchase a Starpath Supercharger and it would work just fine. Also, the ColecoVision uh, has an accessory that allows you to play uh, 2,600 cartridges on it. It doesn't normally fit the ColecoVision because of its size, but if you called StarPath and let them know you were having that issue, they would send you an extender at no charge that would basically allow it to clear the, the issue that the size affected, and then you could actually use your supercharger with your ColecoVision. couple little fun facts. Well, what if I've run into this issue now? Are they going to still send me one, Dave? No. No, and I couldn't find any online, actually. I went to go look for a star path, and um, and nope, no such luck. Damn. My ColecoVision will be without the star path forever. Yes, it will. It will absolutely be without it forever. Let's see. Let's give it one more college try. Star path <laughs> supercharger. Um, and by the way... After looking up Craig T. Nelson, yes, I 100% know him. I just didn't know him by name. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. All right. So eBay, Starpath Supercharger. Here's one, $130. Oh, wow. Here's two, $100. Plenty of the games. Games are all from like 25 Here's six of them for 120 So 20 bucks a piece. Phaser Patrol, $25. Yeah, so I mean, not terribly priced as a aftermarket type deal, but there's definitely 
oh, here's like a Starpath Supercharger in the entire library, and this guy thinks he's going to get 1200 for all of it. Maybe. Wow. I mean, it is quite the collection to have all of it. Yeah, for sure. So I guess, you know, there are some Phaser Patrol Supercharger bundle complete in big box, $300. So it's not impossible to get a Starpath Supercharger. Not impossible at all. So, yes. So the Supercharger connected to the Atari 2600, and then you'd connect it to any cassette player, and you'd buy these games that were cassettes, and you'd put the cassette in, hit play, and away you'd go. Um, the Supercharger library were games that only worked in this way, and only the Supercharger games would work on the accessory. As far as I know, there were no other games made on a cassette for the Atari 2600 that worked in this way. So yeah, so let's look at the Supercharger library. There was a game called Phaser Patrol. Phaser Patrol was written by Dennis Caswell. It was the pack-in game for the uh, Supercharger accessory, which came out in 1982. And basically, this is just a game that simulates space combat um, in which the player pilots a ship to destroy invaders. So it's kind of like Space Invaders, except they called it they called it Phaser Patrol. It looks a little different. Looks a little different. Has better graphics. Has better graphics. It was a simulation. It's high graphics were praised. High resolution. I mean, we know that that was the benefit to all these games. With all that memory, they could look a lot better than they were used to. And in fact, this game was runner-up in the category of Best Video Game Audiovisual Effects at the 4th Annual Archie Awards. What are the Archie Awards, you ask? Yes, what are the Archie Awards? Electronic Games was a magazine that was published from 1981 to 1997, and every year they had the Arcade Awards, which was the are also known as the Archie Awards, which as far as we know was the first game of the year like awards ceremony. Oh, neat. So yeah. That is definitely a pretty cool little thing there. Yep. There you go. So Phaser Control was runner up for best video game audiovisual. Alright, Rob. There was a game on the Starpath Supercharger called Communi- Communist Mutants from Space. Why, why specifically communists? Why can't they just be mutants from space? Because in the 80s, com- yeah, communists... The War, the, the, yeah, yeah, the Red Scare. All right, that, that's a good point. It was called the Cold War. And you never had to live through it, so I'm not going to hold that against you. Well, it was <laughs> the Red, the Red, the Red. We were against the Russians, but it was definitely called the Cold War. The Cold War, the Iron Curtain. Yes, Dave, I learned about it all. I just misspoke I because I'm exhausted. I learned about it in history class. Yeah, I know. Me too. I think. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. History class on my stone tablet. Yeah. So Communist Mutants from Space was a fixed shooter. It was programmed by Stephen Landrum, uh, specific to the Star Path accessory. It is a game that is similar to Galaxian. You start out with three reserve cannons, and the whole object is to destroy the mutant aliens and the mother creature. You've got like these mutants that hatch from moving eggs at the top of the screen and the mother creature kind of replenishes them. So basically you got to focus on the mother creature and kill it. Otherwise you'll just keep replenishing the eggs and then you take it all down to move on to the next wave. Um, If a mutant or a bomb thrown by any of them comes in contact with you, you're destroyed, you lose a life, so on and so forth had all these changes you could make to it. It had a shield option where you could toggle a shield that would let you become invincible for like uh, once per level for a second. There was a time warp that would slow down enemies. You could change a type of shot to penetrating fire so it would go through one enemy and hit a second one. And there was like a guided fire option in which you could move the shot after you shot it instead of it just going in a straight line. So that was pretty cool. And this was a multiplayer game. You could play up to four people on it. Players one and three would use one controller, and two and four would share the other controller, because the Atari only had two uh, two controller slots. So I think you would just take turns. You'd die and take turns, you know? Right, that would make sense. I mean, there's. I feel like we've, we've done that a lot on even you know single-player games. 
Yep, yep, yep. That was the thing back then. There was a game called Fireball, which was a breakout clone developed by Starpath. It's similar to Breakout. You use a ball to break up walls made of bricks. And when you hit the bricks with the ball, the shape of the walls change. It differs from Breakout, though. So in Breakout, you have that like platform at the bottom, which is kind of like a bat. But in this one, the platform is an animated juggler who can catch and throw the ball at bricks, which is kind of unique. Okay. Also, you can keep up to six fireballs in the air at any one time instead of just one. So you got to literally juggle juggle your balls. Giggle, giggle. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't say gargle. I said jiggle. Wait. God damn it. I said juggle. <laughs> oh, my God. Hoo-wee. And there were different modes of play. They were called Fire Trap, Knock a Block, Marching Blocks, Migrating Blocks, and Cascade. Just just different modes and bricks and the way bricks and the balls interacted with one another. So on and so forth. So you had Fireball. You also had a game called Escape from the Mind Master. Ooh, I nifty. Know. This one was also made by Starpath. The whole goal of the game was to solve a maze that was basically just a bunch of hallways and rooms. The rooms were empty. They could have puzzle pegs. They could have a bonus game that allowed you to collect more points. The puzzle pegs were basically like keys. They were ba- they were shapes. So as you went through the maze, there'd be like a wall or a door that had a circle and you had to find a circle puzzle peg to go through that door. Essentially what we turned into colored keys later on you know like doom has colored keys for instance yeah yep this one just has puzzle pegs so it's like trying to put a square peg through a round hole type deal as the levels advance as you go up in levels the pegs start to appear more similar so basically they would be similar shapes but with tiny differences to make it more difficult also the pegs were placed differently they were randomly placed throughout the maze every time you restarted the maze so it wasn't the same you couldn't memorize the maze and where the pegs were and just zoom through it. It was it was randomly randomly generated, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Now, in case that didn't sound hard enough, there's also an alien stalker that roams the maze. And if you get too close to him, he will kick you back to the start of the maze. And basically, each maze had two parts. There was a safe part, and then there was a ladder part that you would be stalked by the creature. So... Initially, you were kind of safe. You can just go through, find the pegs, go through doors. And then the second part of the maze, you'd be stalked as you went through it. The creature kind of beeps. So as he gets closer, you can hear the beeping. (laughs) Also, in some of the more higher levels, there were like squares that would slide out of the wall that could crush you. Higher mazes also had one-way doors um, that would force you to go a different route. So there were different ways that that they did it. It was basically a 2D maze game. It was played on six levels. These are the kind of games that by today's standards, they have absolutely terrible graphics. But back then, you know, if you had seen the movie Alien and you were, you know, into video games, it would have been absolutely frightening to hear that beeping noise. And the thing of it is, is like it was quiet to loud. We didn't have directional sound back then. So it's not like you can go, oh, crap, he's back into the left of me. All you knew was that he was close or far and you kind of had to decide. You kind of had to decide where he was and what you were going to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I definitely feel like it's one of those cases of like, could you get that confused with the watch that you have stuck somewhere in your house and you can't find and every couple hours just keeps going off because of that alarm. And it's like the game of cat and mouse to find it. Like the alien is your watch, but it's trying to find you. And when you cleared the final level of the game, uh, when you got past level six, firewalk, fire, firewalks, fireworks, fireworks. Would, fireworks would go off. Do you know when else fireworks go off, Rob? When's that, Dave? Ah, every time we use Zencaster to produce another episode of our podcast. Are you a content creator, podcaster, or remote collaborator looking for the perfect recording solution? Look no further. Introducing Zencaster the ultimate podcasting tool that will revolutionize your recording experience. Zencaster brings simplicity and efficiency to your podcasting workflow. Say goodbye to the hassles of complicated setups and the nightmare of lost recordings. 
With Zencaster, you can effortlessly record high-quality audio for multiple guests, no matter where they are in the world. Yeah, like I'm in the Midwest. And I'm recording a thousand miles south from him. With Zencaster's remote recording feature, you get crystal clear audio with automatic local backups. Plus, it captures each guest's audio track individually, so you can edit, mix, and enhance them separately in post-production. No more worrying about overlapping voices or audio glitches. And if you don't want to do post-production, Zencaster offers automatic post-production features like noise reduction and echo cancellation, which saves you time and energy, frankly, ensuring that your podcast sounds professional every single time. Dave used to spend hours editing up background noise and echo, but Zencaster does it all for him now. It's a real game changer, he says. And here's the best part. Zencaster offers both free and premium plans to suit your needs. Their premium plan unlocks some cool additional features like multi-track editing. You get more cloud backups, higher quality recording, higher quality video recording. You also get access to a soundboard that allows you to become more efficient with your recording time. Join thousands of content creators who trust Zencaster for seamless remote recording and professional quality podcasts. So if you're interested in getting all the bells and whistles and you're looking to sign up for a premium plan, we've got a special offer for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use offer code memory card lane, all one word, to get 30% off your first month of any premium hosting plan. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing and use the code. You know it. It's our website too, memory card lane to get this great offer and start creating your own content today. And speaking of content, Rob, there were plenty more games in the supercharger library. Probably the best known one is a game called Dragon Stomper. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Uh, Yes. I mean, at first I thought you were going to say Dragon Romper, but. Stomper sounds much cooler. Or Waffle Stomper. Uh, no, please, for the love of God, no. <laughs> God, cursed images of the internet. For whoever's listening that doesn't know that reference, please, for the love of God, do not look it up. Or Just do, do look not. it up. Do Just look do it up. not. No. Waffle Stop. Waffle Stop. No, please. I, I'll spare yourself. <laughs> so Dragon Stomper is a video game. It was developed by Stephen Landrum. He... he developed a lot of the Starpath library and it follows the adventures of a dragon hunter who is given a quest by the king to defeat a dragon and reclaim a magical amulet that was stolen what kind of amulet a magical amulet what's so magic about it i don't know beats me clearly wasn't magical enough to stop the dragon from taking it i actually do know what it was i'll let you know okay it it can subdue a dragon Oh, well, not very well if he could touch it. I mean, it subdues a dragon. That's pretty awesome. Hey, the dragon stole it, though. That's true. But we're going to get it back. You got to make your way all over the countryside, defeat all these enemies. You got to get gold and experience to get stronger and better weapons. And then once you're strong enough, there's a basically a shop in a village that you can hire soldiers or get special scrolls. That will let you go against the dragon. You know, it's like a... So an RPG. Yeah, it's a sword and sorcery themed world. It's exactly what it is. It's an RPG. It's very much based on Dungeons and Dragons. And basically, like, the kingdom, the king once ruled peacefully. There was a druid that enchanted an amulet that could subdue a dragon. And they took it to a dragon's cave to subdue said dragon. And they got their butts whooped still. And the amulet is now in the hands of the dragon, which increased its power, had the opposite effect. Oh, so they didn't get stolen. They actually just got got. And the amulet was kept as a reward for the dragon who played the RPG better. That's right. So instead of making them stronger, it made the dragon stronger. Hell yeah. This actually sounds like a pretty awesome game. And then the dragon's like, forget you fools. I'm stronger than everyone. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to ravish the land. So he, you know, makes crops die. Make creates all these savage creatures that start vandalizing villages and so on and so forth. Kills all the king's knights. You know, the dragon's warriors kill all the king's knights. And so somehow 
that I'm not sure of, the Dragon Stomper becomes the only person who can basically save the kingdom. And he travels the countryside, gets stronger, and prepares himself to battle the dragon. And there were different ways that you could defeat the dragon that were all pretty cool. Yeah, this this actually sounds like a pretty dope concept. Like, I feel like if they made a game, a modern version of this, I'd totally be about it. So this game took several months to develop, and it, as you said, was a role-playing game. It was designed because they felt that the library had no real role-playing game. They felt, actually, that the Atari 2600 had no real role-playing game. So they made, they made this. And little fun fact, this game and all the others, the whole Starpath library was all developed on Apple II computers. Oh. Yeah, pretty cool. You know, I guess I never really thought of that. You'd have to develop a game somewhere for it to be transferred to a console. God, Rob, you don't think a lot. Well, we still do that to this day, pretty much. Yeah, that's exactly it, Dave. I, it makes perfect sense when I think about it now, but like that, that had to always have been the case. I mean, I guess not always. You technically could develop a game from the console somehow. I don't feel like you could. You'd have to do it from the computer because you have to code everything. They made, They made programs that would allow you, like game maker and rpg maker that would let you make games on there there are not like full-fledged games in the traditional sense but there were always there were there were always games made that let you like quote unquote make games like um playstation has that cool stick uh bag boy what's it called what what stick no. bag boy yeah it's the, where you can make your own levels and stuff like that it, it's a it's a series what's what's it called it's a playstation specific series well that would be the problem dave is i don't know very many is it uh no a uh, little planet the... yeah yeah a little big planet or something like that yeah you okay. got it yeah yeah yeah. there's always going to be games like that where people you know have level makers and character makers and and stuff to make your own version of the game but yes in general to lay down a game game, you're going to have to, you know, typically you, you use a computer in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, you know, we did an episode once on Frogger, and we talked about how Frogger has pretty much been ported over to absolutely everything. For those of you that don't know, Frogger came out in 1981. It was an action arcade game developed by Konami. Sega manufactured it. Sega Gremlin uh, over here in North America. And you basically have to take your frog and you have to cross a busy road and hazardous river to to get where you need to go. And Frogger got a million one ports and one of the ports for Frogger was actually on the Starpath Supercharger. There is a cassette version of Frogger. I'm still waiting for the toaster edition. I know we'll get there. There was a party mix. Party mix was a collection of multiplayer games that was developed and published in 1983 for this. The titles, there were five titles in the party mix. I couldn't really find much information on them, but they were Bapa Buggy, Tug of War, Wizards Keep, Down the Line, uh, and Hand Car was the last one. So did you also have to play these ones in a back and forth fashion? Probably. That's a great question. My guess is yes, just because of the way it was, just because of the way it was. But I'm not entirely sure. Or maybe it was two player only. Or I don't know. That's fascinating. Beats me. I would really like to bop a buggy now. Bop a buggy. Bop a buggy. Bop a buggy. Bop a buggy. God damn it. I get it. Yep. Yep. Same reference. So there were a couple other games. So there were 10 games in the like initial library. That was eight of them, six of them, seven of them. Let's see. There were a couple that don't really have much information on them. There's a game called Suicide Mission. There's oh. a game called Killer Satellites. And there is oh. a a game called Rabbit Transit, which don't is don't... probably just a rabbit ported version of Frogger. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So there's definitely that. Starpath didn't last very long. At some point, the company declared bankruptcy, basically. And I mean, they discontinued it, declared bankruptcy of like 1984. So there were actually a couple games that you could only get after that by mail that like the developers still had available, made a few copies of them and you could put, you could get them through mail order. One of them was called the Sword of Saros. 
It was an action-adventure game. Like I said, they only sold a few copies. And basically, your objective was to explore an evil wizard, an evil wizard's maze-like dungeon to find the pieces of the Sword of Saros. The wizard would send bats to find the player. When successful, the wizard teleports to the player's location and he sends waves of skeletons to attack you. Hmm. Find the pieces of the sword. There's one other mail order game called Survival Island that I couldn't find very much about. It basically looks like you're you're swimming through water to an island in the distance and there are like sharks and stuff in the water coming to get you. On top of that, there were a few prototypes that we know of that we don't know much about. There's a game called Sweat, the decathlon game. That would later become one of the um, summer games. Do you remember? Do you remember like the Nintendo um, Nintendo game called Summer Games at all? Was that the like um, Olympic based game that we had the trackpad for? No, that was it, track and field. Never this mind. This is this. This one would have like pole vault, platform diving, sprinting, gymnastics, freestyle swimming, and skeet shooting. Whoa. No, I just remember the uh, the track and field. Yeah. So, so su- summer games was a basically. I remember it for. I don't remember it for NES. It never came on the NES. It was for the Commodore sixty four, Atari twenty six hundred. Maybe I remember it as an Atari title. Atari 8-bit, Atari XT, Master System, which we learned about in a recent episode. Uh, Sega all the way. And ZX Spectrum. So so it is an Olympics-based thing, kind of, sort of. They called it the Epics Games because there were no official Olympic licensing in place. They couldn't get official licensing. Um, and, and they basically had those games. Uh, skeet shooting, freestyle swimming, gymnastics, all that fun stuff. The inspiration for that came from came from this it, it came from a star path game called sweat the decathlon game there's also one other prototype called going up that's all i know it's definitely an interesting thing honestly some of these games sound pretty freaking dope and i would love to try them obviously i'm not gonna go buy a supercharger just to do that but... well you're you're in luck because the complete library of games, including the prototypes, were also released on an audio CD called Stella Gets a New Brain by the Cyberpunks. There are two releases. They're both sanctioned by Atari and Bridgestone Multimedia, which is the company that now obtains the rights to the Starpath library. Um, and basically on these CDs, you can, you, can, you can find a way to connect it and make it work. Also, there was, I said there were two releases. The first one was just the library, and the second one had a few, like, homebrew stuff added to it. And th- this is obtainable in what way? I have no clue. Oh, okay. It's an audio CD licensed by a band, which that's, is kind of... Okay, I, I'm glad to know that it was a band, because I, I heard the name, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? What? It... So... You mentioned that Starpath also went out of business. Was all that they produced this accessory and some games? This is it. Wow. That kind of sucks. I mean... I mean... Yeah. I mean, they they put this out. The Starpath came out in 1982, and the cult industry crashed in 1983. They... That, they, they, you know, they, they tried to shop it around, see if they could, like, make it work for... Uh, PCs, stuff like that, but none of it, none of it actually took. None of it actually took. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking them. Obviously, they they tried doing what they wanted, and it just didn't work out. Obviously, yep. the market changed in '83, but it's just, it just kind of sucky, you know. Like, who knows? This is actually a pretty cool concept for it in in the time, and who knows what if this company wouldn't have gone under if the industry hadn't done what it did, where they could have gone and you know, how would that affect what we have now? You know, Rob, there were some other, I tried looking up other accessories for the Atari 2600 and it's mostly different controllers that you could buy. So there was one called the joy board. It was sold with a skiing game called mogul maniac. You know, basically it was a platform that you controlled. You would stand on it and you would lean left or right. And your skiing character would move to the left or to the right. 
Okay. Kind of neat. There was one called the Foot Craze. It was sold with a game called Video Jogger and also with a game called Video Reflex. Basically, it's the spiritual precursor to the Nintendo Power Pad, which we, we know of and we've talked about before. Um, so, so it was a pad that you could run on. These were running games. And, like you know, in every system, there's always an attempt to promote physical activity, Wolva Gaming, and that was the, the Atari 2600 promote one. There was a controller called the Flight Commander. The Milton Bradley made it. It was packaged with a game called Spitfire Attack. Basically, it was an elaborate joystick that was meant to look like a fighter plane gun mount. And while it looked very fancy, it didn't function any differently than a normal controller. I don't know. It sounds like a cool concept, but when you say it just it functioned like a normal controller, that, that makes me wonder, like, was there anything special? Like, would it really have been that different than just using a controller? No. I mean, other than the fact that it looked cool. And you Fair can enough. use your imagination. There you go. Yeah. What is that? I know we are spoiled nowadays. Bill and Bradley also made something called the Cosmic Command Controller. They made they it came with the game called Survival Run. Basically, it looks like a futuristic computer screen with handles. It was their version of a future space age controller. It may look fancy, but it was also just a normal controller. And then there's one more accessory. I I know we've talked about this before. In fact, I think we talked about this when we did the episode on the Satellaview. The satellite add-on for the Super Nintendo was the Satellaview. Wasn't that it? Was it Super Nintendo? Uh, you I ask think... me like I remember. You're the rememberer guy, Dave. I don't know. But we talked about this before. Now that we're focusing on accessories, let's talk about it in the context of accessories for Atari 2600. There was a modem add-on for the Atari 2600. It was given to you as part of something called the game line service. Do you remember the game line service at all? It, I remember it by name, but like that was, yeah. Yeah. So game line was a dial up game distribution service that was made for the Atari 2600. And basically in 1983, there was a cable pioneer called William von Meister, and he was looking for a way to use his modern transmission technology um, to do something with it. He had acquired it in an attempt to create a company that would be able to send music through cable lines. He had all sorts of legal issues with licensing and stuff like that. And so the, all the cable providers basically said, no, thanks. We don't want to have anything to do with this. And, you know, so he spent all this money on this technology. And then once the music thing fell through, he's like, well, what the heck am I going to use this for? I have a delivery tool now and no content. So what he did was he converted this, you know, variable speed adaptive modern modem technology that he had acquired to allow people to download games from servers into their households. And so there was a modem you could buy and you could pay for a subscription service and pay fees for the games that allowed you to dial into the servers and then you could download games to your game line modules. Now, the problem with technology back then is memory wasn't the greatest. So each game would work for about 10 times. And then you'd have to reconnect to game line again and download it again to keep playing it. And, and yeah, basically. Yeah, that I do remember that now. Basically, you had this proprietary modem and storage cartridge. You know, the storage cartridge is where the games would get downloaded to. And you would be able to download. Basically, you download games over a telephone line. You know, it the cartridge had eight kilobytes of RAM. So that's where your game was stored. It was a twelve hundred bits per second modem. Probably have no clue what I'm talking about, but that was decent for the time. And it basically it looked like an oversized silver Atari cartridge. It had a phone jack on the side that would allow you to connect into the phone line and link into the, the game line service. When they designed GameLine, their vision was that it wouldn't just be games. They also had all these other ideas like Newsline for news, Stockline for stock quotes, Sportline for sports reporting and scores, MailLine for uh, email, uh, BankLine for online banking, OpinionLine for online forums, and they also wanted to include all this other stuff in something called InfoLine like airline schedules, horoscopes classified ads 
their idea was to have this whole service that you could connect to, but they never got it off the ground. They got the games going and you know, this was just like the star path supercharger really affected by the video game crash in 1983. So before they could get anything else, but the game service itself working, you know, they went bankrupt and kaput. It's said though, that Stockline and Sportsline were pretty much complete when they had to shut everything down. Um, so someone made them. We just never got to, got to use it. And that's, that's on the same point right there, Dave. I mean, honestly, something like that sounds to me like a crazy version of like the original Xbox market, like Xbox live marketplace thing. Like, well, you're right. It really just goes to show you is that like, I remember when Xbox live came out and I, you know, we, we, thought it was revolutionary and i remember when half-life came out and steam was attached to it and we thought it was revolutionary and there's all these things that were like oh my god that's cool new technology it wasn't new technology just someone took old technology and they made it better and that's kind of what the whole industry is to be honest with you if you think about it we take old technology and we make things better um, uh, that's, that's engineering in a in a nutshell yeah, that's true you're right about that um, but it's just, it's, it's crazy to me to think like, like just, you could download it through a cable or phone line. Yeah, I know the fact that we did that regularly, that we had dial up internet was, I mean, I remember, I remember racing with other people on NASCAR, like the original NASCAR game with a dial up modem. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Cause it's one of the earliest things I can remember playing against other people online from the comfort of my own home. And now look at us like that's the primary way to play games for so many people, you know? Oh, absolutely. No, it's, it's times are definitely different. It's pretty awesome. The game line library had about 75 games in it. They were well-known Atari titles, airlock alien bake heist. Cosmic arc was in there. Demon attack, fast food, gangster alley, mash Polaris, riddle, the Sphinx, star gunner, world zapper, just a few. They were a lot of the Atari 2600 library. It was definitely a, technolo- definitely a technology that was ahead of its time. It wasn't very popular though, because it was expensive. You had to pay $60 for the hardware, which was a lot of money back in the early eighties, $15 for a membership fee. And then you could also, you also had to pay a dollar per game. Every time you downloaded it, like I said, you could only play it 10 times and you had to redownload it for another dollar. Okay, so yeah, even by today's standards, that is expensive. It genuinely is, yes. Yeah, if we could only play a game 10 times, we had to pay a dollar every time. People would just literally burn the service down. Oh, yeah, no, it would not. That would not happen today. That, and I could, yeah, it's, it's, I could see why it wasn't that popular. So the game is unfortunate. I know, I agree. The game line library and service itself isn't very significant if you know if you'll recall from the last episode i was talking about it it's what happened to it afterwards that makes game line more significant the company that developed and operated game line was a company called control video corporation or cbc like i said they fell to the wayside during the video game crash in 1983 even though game line was discontinued the investors and the founding members of cbc went on to start a new company that would continue to use the technological infrastructure they had built for the game line service. This company was called Quantum Computer Services. It was created by Steve Case, among others, and they created a service called the Quantum Link, which would link together Commodore 64 and Commodore 128 users offered many of the same services for the Commodore that they that they made for the Atari game line and more. They got some of the other stuff to work, like the stock line and sports line. The Quantum Link had a lot of this stuff. Now, what's most significant, why game line and CVC and quantum computer services is historically relevant is because in October of 1991, quantum computer services became America Online. What? Which, as we know pretty much revolutionized the internet very successful during the 1990s bought by time warner in 2001 but was spun off a few years later still exists today 
I know people that still have AOL email addresses and it makes me chuckle oh every time they goodness. give them to me. But yeah, it's really kind of fascinating that this Atari 2600 dial-up service, the technological infrastructure that they designed to offer that service <sighs> would eventually become yeah. America Online. Which when you really stop and look at the vision of that is mm -hmm. it just makes perfect sense. So, yeah, they never stopped development. They just kept continually improving it until they made it work. That is 100 percent true. Absolutely that, true. That's insane. Like, just yeah, it's that that's one of those cases you can definitely see beginning vision and how it plays out. Like it's it's pretty fucking sweet. Yeah. So the game line service is important for historical reasons so don't forget about it and there were a few other odds and ends for accessories you know you could buy a like little rapid fire module that you'd put over the button on the joystick and it would rapidly press the button on your joystick nice you know so there were like third party things like that and there were third party controllers some fun licensed one there's a blue tron joystick out there somewhere so there were some odds and ends but the star path and the game line were kind of the two significant ones Neither one was entirely popular. They were expensive for their time and just didn't offer much, you know, but but they existed. And that's that. That is that. What else existed was the games that were on it. You know, we talked about Frogger and um, what else did we talk about? There are a couple other games that we covered today. We've done episodes on these. You know, you can find out more about the Atari. You can find out more about Frogger by going to check out our episodes on some of these topics in our archives. And of course, if you want to go through our archives, you can do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of our upcoming episodes. Maybe provide us with some insight that you might have. Or, you know, just just tell us your general feelings about a game. You can find links to several of our little community gathering places. We have a Patreon. We also have a Discord channel where you can come hang out with Dave and I talk about what you think is cool, what you think is dumb, and just generally hang out. And you can also find links to our social medias. I am on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor. And Dave? I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Also like to point out that our Patreon for $1 or $2 a month, you can support this podcast on our Patreon. We have been posting unedited as well as ad-free episodes of each podcast episode on the Patreon Weekly. So there are things available to you for the low, low dollar amount of a dollar each week we'll tell you the story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history while doing so we hope to teach you something new about the topic what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy today we learned all about the starpath supercharger its library and some other accessories for the atari 2600 each week while we do our research and outline these episodes to teach you about it we always learn things it's a great cycle because when you teach people things you always learn new things in yourself in recognition of this teaching and learning cycle we like to go round table and talk about our takeaways for each episode so rob starting with you what did you learn today well, today was, again, one of those episodes where I learned just about every damn thing we had to talk about. Um, I never knew about the Supercharger. I know very little about the Atari 2600. Um, that, so it, a lot of knowledge at once. But I do think the Supercharger is a really cool thing. I think it's just a crazy concept to... And it really shouldn't be, but... It's all just data, but it's still a crazy concept to me, being that it's such old technology and I never like lived through when it was popular and things like you could play a video game off of a cassette, like what you would normally listen to music off of. Like, it's just such a weird thought to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's shocking. Like, just it makes sense. I get it. But just thinking about it, it's like, wow, that's a weird thought. 
And then sure. the other thing that I think is really fantastic about this is game line into America online. I mean, for any of us that were growing up in the early days of the internet, or at least, well, I shouldn't say early internet, but like big social media and things, AOL is where it was at. Those chat rooms were where you learned about life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll go with that. Uh, fun times. So that's, those are my big takeaways, Dave, cassettes being able to play games in America online chat rooms. What about you? The supercharger was new for me. I honestly didn't know it existed before I tripped on it and did this episode. And it's always fun to, it's always fun to trip on things. And uh, unless things. you fall down and get hurt. Nah, even that. Cause you learn from that too, I guess. I don't know. What do you learn from just tripping? Like not to, not to step there and do that again. Oh yeah. Just Other, do better. Otherwise it hurts. Do better. Do better. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fun. This was, this was all new to me learning that there was a whole library of games out there, you know, that could only be played with the accessory learning that there was a device that made the Atari's memory increase 19 fold and everything yeah. that they did with it, you know, so that is pretty freaking incredible too. Yeah, no, this was good. This was fun. This is a whole bunch of games I had never heard of before, which is, it's always weird to me to find that like with these old systems, I kind of been doing this long enough that I feel like I know a lot of their libraries so to find a whole library of games that didn't I didn't know existed is is it's just interesting. I love it. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I love doing this every week. So, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's definitely I mean, even for me, who doesn't know any of this, it's always cool to hear about these little niche things that, you know, hey, these these could have revolutionized the way that video game industry built out. Yep. All right, Rob. Well, that'll do it for the supercharger supercharge star path supercharger we're just going to go with that one the star path supercharger and i will take it to next week but before i do so what would you like to add to today's episode well dave as always i do have to take a quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners it means the world to us that you listen week in week out or pop in once in a while and miss a few episodes here and there whatever it is we don't really mind but it's great to hear from you we love to know your feedback we appreciate everything about it it's a lot of fun and just thanks for coming along very true very very true thanks to everyone who listens we appreciate your support it's great honestly all right on that note we're gonna look ahead to next week Next week, we're going to be looking at a game that lets you play out your fantasy of being a photojournalist in the middle of a zombie outbreak. Armed only with your camera, your job is to document one of the biggest news stories in history. And you can pick up things to beat the crap out of zombies. <laughs> yeah. Released in August of 2006, Dead Rising started a series that now has multiple games, multiple remakes, and multiple oh. films. So stick around and join us next week as we frame the perfect photo on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Dibby dum 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 boo doo.